Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, we are here this afternoon with a very special guest, writer Fabian Nicieza. I hope I said that correctly. You said it perfectly, sir. Yes, I should be able to after how long we've known each other. <laughs> 142 years we've known each other. <laughs> yeah, just about. And Fabian, for those who don't know, there's got to be nobody who doesn't know this, but Fabian is a renowned comic book writer, a former editor for Marvel Comics. He's written tons of series for Marvel and uh, issues of X-Men, Alpha Flight, New Warriors, X-Force, <laughs> Avengers, Thunderbolts, co-creator of Deadpool, and Domino and Shatterstar and others. And uh, he used to write articles for Marvel Age back when I was an assistant editor in the mid-1980s. So That's right. My first, my first two jobs, official freelance jobs at Marvel, were for Marvel Age. Amazing. Yeah, that was wild. You you were there. You you were there when I started. The, we we yeah. you were already there when I started. I started yeah. in August of '85, and you were already there for working with Jim, right? That is correct. How long had you been there? When did you start? Well, I started writing articles around issue 26. I don't know the dates off my top of top of my head, and then I started as an assistant editor on issue 34, which is a GI Joe cover a few months later after Kurt Busiek left it behind for what he thought were going to be greener pastures. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was on Marvel H for about a year and a half as an okay. assistant editor. So I just never forget like the first gig when I told Jim that I had a little bit of experience with some newspaper writing, which I had not a lot, but a little. And, and um, he gave me an assignment as a test case to interview Steve Geiger, who was one of oh, yeah. Anita's Raiders. And I did an artist showcase on him. And nice. I guess that, that came out good enough that he tells me the next assignment is going to be interviewing Stan Lee for a cover feature. <laughs> and I, couldn't, I could not believe it, Adam. I, it, it, I remember to this day yep. how it felt like I got hit in the head with a hammer. Like I'm not even at the job for in, I'm not even at the office working on my nine to five job for two weeks. And I'm going to be calling, I'm going to be talking to Stanley and interviewing him for a cover feature on Marvel. I was like, come on. I hear you because I got to say, I had a similar experience with Jim, with Stan, because within a few days of me starting at Marvel age, Jim handed me this piece of paper with like all the, you know, that he'd been typewriting on. And he says, call Stan's office, here's the number, and tell him this is what I want him to write for the next bullpen, I mean, the next Stan soapbox. Because he would do like an outline for Stan. Uh -huh. So I called him up, and I was nervous as anything, you know, and I'm like going, oh, it says here, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and the Stan's on the other end going like, <laughs> okay, kid, whatever you say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, type it up for me kid i'm sure it'll be nice and neat yeah right <laughs> it's amazing it is it's just like i don't know is that the best management method in the world that salakrup was employing or the worst i'm not 100 <laughs> sure which it is. yeah right to this day i don't know which it is yeah 
So we uh, we were just getting to the the good stuff here with uh, your your intro, though, Fabian, which is of course that this summer you published uh, your first novel, Suburban Dicks, which was fantastic. I read it a few weeks ago. I loved it, and it's highly acclaimed. It's got starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, which is you know. That counts for a lot, and and yeah, a lot of was, other people. I, I was as well. told that was good news. <laughs> that like, is okay, good. Cool. That is very good news. Yes, absolutely. I've I've been around that world enough to know, you know, that those are coveted review statuses or whatever. So anyway, but we're here today to talk about a really awesome comic book, one that I treasured, if you will, as a kid, which is <laughs> Captain America's Bicentennial Battles. <laughs> And it, you treasured it because it was a treasury edition. edition I know. So which dumb. was the giant oversized tabloids size that they used to do for a little while back then in the 70s. Yeah, we had a, I had a long conversation about these tabloid-sized comics not that long ago with Mark Wade for this very podcast. And, you know, DC started doing them in about, I think it was 72. And then uh, they ran until about 1980. So actually fairly long but you know they kind of really gathered steam around 75 76 yeah and marvel did you know marvels were their own thing marvel treasury edition they were mostly called this one's called marvel treasury special featuring captain america's bicentennial battles they were mostly a dollar 50 like this one is this can you believe it can you believe it a when buck and a half. what they are now the 80, buck, I know. A buck 50 it, seemed it, so extravagant back then you know it did it was expensive. I get um, well, com- comics were thirty cents, I believe, at that time. Um, yeah, that's about right. At, between thirty and thirty-five cents at that time, maybe just shifting over from twenty-five to thirty. And I just remember every time it went up a nickel, you just gr- were grinding your teeth, you know. Oh yeah. And then and then to think you got to spend a buck fifty, but look what you're getting, you know. Look look at this giant thing you're getting, you know. <laughs> right. It was incredible. So it published on June 22nd, 1976, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, my favorite site. And um, man, it is wall-to-wall Kirby. So I think maybe before we get into this even, you know, I was reading Captain America at the time, and I'm wondering, were you? And what was your response to Jack Kirby coming on that series? Um, I had been reading Captain America through the highlights of the Engelhart Buscema run. Mm-hmm. I stopped reading it after Engelhart left and, and Frank Robbins took over his art because back then I was young enough to be stupid and not like Frank Robbins' art. Um, <laughs> I didn't either. I, I cha- that changed quite a bit as I got older, but at that time I didn't like Frank Robbins' art. No. And then I, the minute Kirby came back, we started getting it again. And I, I The comics purchasing in, in my household was not always a solitary thing my brother and i my brother's three years older and he's been in in and out of the industry for years Mm. as well mariano we would often get things together you know i had my thing i got which was always avengers every month he had his thing he got which was always defenders and then we (laughs) we would get things together because we agreed that something yeah yeah and we definitely the minute we knew kirby was coming back um we wanted to get it and this was I was fifteen when this came. Not not I'm sorry, I wasn't yet fifteen. I didn't turn fifteen till at the end of December of nineteen seventy six. Mm. So I was fourteen and a half. And I was I, I when I reread it in anticipation of us 
talking and I had just reread it in the Marvel Masterworks volume just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And even though I have the treasury edition downstairs in the basement, I had not reread it in a little while. I, I always find it really enjoyable to look at Kirby stuff from the seventies. Oh um, yeah. Because I go through, I go through like three distinct phases. Eight year old me thought Kirby was a god of power and excitement and adventure and, mm. you know and 12 year old me thought kirby didn't know how to write and never wrapped up stories and there was <laughs> just too much going on and it was all over the place and he had no focus and that was his, wow. his fourth world stuff at dc mm. and then 14 year old and into 15 year old me who started to get captain america when Kirby came back, got Black Panther 2, didn't get 2001, and only got the first couple issues of Eternals. It was a mixed bag for me at that age. I saw the things he was doing that I, I appreciated, and then I, saw, I, I and then I saw some of the same problems I had with him as a writer of his own work, or especially as an editor of his own writing, you know? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it was the art that was always so powerful it kind of conquered all for me, you know, Yeah. yeah. even rereading this and, and I'm just chuckling at some of, at some of the writing and, and some of the pacing and some of the plotting. And it's not even old man, me being a professional writer for 30 years, who's doing that chuckling. It's, it's the teenager in me who's still feeling that same emotion I felt when I originally read it. Yeah. Even through it all, you'll hit a double page spread that just makes you stop and, and just stare at it. Oh, some of the art is absolutely crap. stunning. Yeah. You know, his storytelling, even well, he was into his, he was well into his 50s by this point, right? right. Yeah. He was in his yeah. mid to late 50s by this point. It, his storytelling is still just so immaculate, you know, and yeah. and, his, and, his, and his, his images are so powerful that, that you get through some of the hokey stuff when you're a teenager, if you're smart. And then when you're an adult, an adult, like you start to appreciate some of that hokey stuff more, you know, mm-hmm. I, I thought this was an incredibly ambitious book. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's huge. And I mean, not just physically, but it's like, like the most Kirby thing about this to me in a weird way is the fact that he wrote and drew it all. And it took a, a, a small army of inkers to get it done. Mm-hmm. Because if you, you look at com- time, yeah, right? if you yeah. look at, com- they had, you know, they had that newsstand shipping window on these treasury editions. Yeah, that there's absolutely. no way they could afford to miss it. And it had to come out before the 4th of July. So yes. It was, it was all hands on deck in a way, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And if you look at comics.org's listing for it, there are three anchors who did a lot of pages who never didn't even get credited in, in the story. Yeah. Yeah, so, I think Dan Atkins inked at least a chapter, right? Yeah, and yeah. he didn't get credited, right? And, and, and the the only ones who get credited are, are Barry Windsor Smith and Herb Trimpey and John Romita. Right, John John Reporton and Frank Giacoya also inked quite a lot of pages. Ah, oh, so. which I, I I see, and that becomes a game too, where you start to try to figure out who inked what page. You it's know, hard right. to tell. You, I, it I, is hard to tell, but you can see. Yeah. If you look carefully, I can see where Giacoya inked something versus where, you know, maybe maybe Atkins did or Trimpey did. Definitely. Um, and you can see the Ramita Captain America faces here and there. Yeah, yeah. They're sprinkled. Those, those Although I got to tell you, outside of the faces, 
sometimes it's it's hard to tell that John was inking. No, Jack. I agree. It, it it often showed in the faces, but then he was very like devoted to to the pencil lines in in other things like you know right. the anatomy and and the texture on on backgrounds and stuff like that. But yeah. the faces, John. I guess either John was so used to having to change other people's faces or he just oh, yeah. couldn't help himself. He had, to, he had to clean it to make it a prettier face. Right. It was also interesting to see Barry Smith's inking, which is pretty heavy-handed on, on Kirby, you know? But it's a fascinating combo. It really is. I've always wondered what Kirby thought when he saw this because I know usually if, if anybody asked, what do you think of my work, he'd say, you know, keep going, kid, you're doing great or whatever, you know? Yeah. But to see it on his own work and have it look so unusual, you have to wonder what he thought. And who knows? He may have just not have thought much or whatever. But there are places, especially toward the end of the sequence with the in the woods, where the inking really, you know, looks very pre-Raphaelite, really. Yeah, I, I think that I'm... The amount of changes he made to the faces is what struck me the most. Yeah. Um, the work he did to change Jack's noses um, right. and, and soften them. And what it really did in a little bit of a way was remind me of Sid Shore's inking. Oh, that's interesting. It's a heavy brush stroke and heavy, heavy line weights and use of shadows where I don't know that Kirby might have ever even really put shadows and even if kirby did they're more photorealistic shadowing you know (laughs) which is really fascinating to see on kirby's pencils it really is because it softens it softens kirby's faces i don't know that it takes away any of its power you know yeah i don't think it does alters it slightly and it's also really interesting because of course you know uh, trippy barry smith started out kind of as a a kirby clone kirby copier Mm -hmm. And obviously, within a few years, he got away from that, like pretty quickly. Yeah, he was so young. He was, he, you know, when you think about it, some of these guys, like Barry Smith, was so young when he drew that first Avengers issue. Oh yeah, that that he, he he's not that far removed from a high school student tracing images from a comic book to create their own panels. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Right. And in essence, it's almost like he showed samples that were him tracing Kirby's work, or or maybe not tracing, but but completely using Kirby's style to yes. to connote the, the material. And that was enough for Roy Thomas or whoever to say, okay, yeah, yeah, just we need someone to draw this. You know, <laughs> and he's a close enough mimic that we can use him, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've I've never had this proven one way or another, but I, I kind of wonder sometimes if there was a little bit of a push to bring in talent from U- the UK in the late sixties, because there's like uh Marvel superheroes, Kazar story that's written by uh, Steve Parkhouse. Yeah. And they, yeah. and they used uh, Jim Lawrence on some strange tales stories and Dr. Strange. Yep. Um, so who knows? I, I've never heard one way or another, if there was something, but it feels I like if it. that was more Roy than Stan. I wonder be. if Roy just needed more, more, more freelancers and, and an avenue of opportunity afforded itself to him, you know, yeah. no it's different fun. than the Philippine influx of the early seventies. Yeah. You know, right. When, when all of a sudden this wellspring of creative talent was available to them. Mm-hmm. They, they were so fast that they were lifesavers for, for the editors. Right. 
and so many things, you know? So uh-huh. it, it, it becomes a flood, like a floodgates open up, but I don't know that any of that talent at that time really kind of held on. Like they didn't stick around to keep working on Marvel stuff other than, and Barry technically really didn't when you think about it. He was, yes. very, he was very sporadic for a couple of years before the Cohen and before he, he, he clearly started to kind of find his own path enough so that Roy was willing to work with him on Conan as a monthly gig. And right. of course he exploded after that. I, I remember getting Conan when I was younger. Um, I, I, not from the very first issue, but probably from around issue seven or eight. Uh-huh. And, and I could just watch this guy getting better oh, yeah. and better and better, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I've read those issues over and over again. And one of the real draws of it, the stories are fine, you know, but it's like Conan, it's always kind of the same thing in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah. But one of the really fascinating things about those issues is watching how quickly... When you, when you just said that about Conan, I just, my first thought was, by Crom, how dare you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Start a nerd fight. Start yeah, right. a nerd sword fight. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, you know, how quickly he develops as an artist is stunning. It's stunning. It really yeah. is. And, and, and how quickly how quickly he evolved in in the, the depth of his work as a result of inking himself the yeah. times that he inked himself and, and and then i'm sure he was doing a lot of a, a lot of color notes and a lot of things that were changing right. the approach to some of those pages on the part of other people in the creative process like the color so I'm trying to remember if he colored if he colored Conan 24 I don't know. We're getting, I'm getting, I'm letting myself get off topic. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. So let's talk about the way the story opens a little bit because it reminds me of the early issues of Black Panther that Kirby did, where there's another character who's really instigating the action, you know? Yes. And yes. Even though Captain America is more active in these stories than Black Panther was, you know, none, none of this would have happened except for Mr. Buddha. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, and, and and those were the problems I had with Kirby back then as a teenager. I was very cynical about about the some of this stuff. I I I, I was um I remember feeling and even rereading it now with a professional eye, a sense of frustration that that such a shortcut is being taken to uh-huh. to get Cap into the into the story and and. And Cap is a character who shouldn't need shortcuts, you know. He's, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a he's as proactive as they come when it comes when it comes to entering into the flow of an adventure story, you know. Which is true, but is this really an adventure story? You know, it's kind it, of a let no, Cap no, witness yeah, history. It's certainly an adventure. It's an adventure travel story, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a learning thing but right. again i i feel like and and i love this book i love it but i'm yeah. still going to be critical of it you know um, yeah for sure I, I i feel that it was it was wrong-headed to introduce this really weird polyglot asian <laughs> philosophies <laughs> magic character to be what instigates and initiates cap's journey through right a greater understanding of what the American dream is, what the American spirit is. And that's the crux of the story. Yes. And it's a good crux to the story. There's, to me, the strength and power of the story is how almost every single individual vignette 
as Cap travels to different pasts, mm -hmm. um, highlight one aspect of the American dream that are actually being told through Kirby's underdog eyes. They're not yeah. being told through the eyes of the winners, of the moneyed people, of those po political power. I mean, Kirby was and remained a real salt of the earth, hard scrabble, New York rooted kid. And it shows through because if you reread this, when, when I reread it, <laughs> uh, it, 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 I was reminded once again of yeah. talk about social justice warriors. Here we are in right? 1976. Jack Kirby is telling a social justice tale because every right. vignette is through the eyes of the oppressed. And I found yes. that fascinating. To me, the, that's the beauty of the crux of the story. The mm -hmm. sci-fi mystical trappings, the confrontations or arguments between Cap and Mr. Boot, I think are not really well handled and, and could have been done in a much stronger better way mm. uh, to help propel and enhance the themes of the story but each individual chapter has a moment where cap is confronted by a mm. truth of the tarnished american dream and i think those were those are great moments yes let me ask you this do you think the story could have functioned better if it was an established Marvel character like Doctor Strange instead of, you know, this guy he just made up. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, a hundred percent. No doubt. I thought about that here, and I also thought in the 1930s segment where there's a newsboy who's getting, you know, ripped off by some gangsters for his nickel, like, I was waiting, even though I knew that it wouldn't happen, I was thinking as I'm reading it, like, at the end, you know, that kid could have been like, Listen, buddy, Benjamin J. Grimm doesn't forget people who helped them or something, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's no doubt that Kirby's return to Marvel was, was really um, hampered by his refusal to work within established continuity. Yeah. Um, and I think that I think his, his work, his stories, and its perceptions at the time, especially, but certainly uh, it's how we could recall it more fondly now. Mm -hmm. would have been enhanced if he had played in the sandbox better. And I, and look, that's with it, the caveat that I completely understand why he didn't want to play in the sandbox. Sure. 100%. I, I do. That doesn't mean that I have to agree with it. And it doesn't mean that I think that that made his work better. I yeah. don't. <laughs> I don't agree with it. And I don't think it made his work better. Um, we, we, can, and, we can all agree the cosmic powered Hulk in the Eternals not one of the series better moments. No. <laughs> how, how, how forced must he have been to put Eternal and put the, put the, put the Hulk in there? <laughs> Jack, he's on, he's on TV. If you don't put the Hulk in it, we're canceling the book. It's the last issue anyway. What are we... <laughs> yeah, really. And it's funny, you know, he got put in the same damn situation with Forever People and Dead Man. Not that the Dead Man was on yes. TV or anything, but just, you know, Infantino was like, you got to put somebody in there. Why not Dead Man? A character I created. Although, you know. Yeah. Not that I, I'm sure Infantino wasn't getting anything out of that other than it's just a character he likes. Yeah. But it was and, a similar and situation look, it, for Kirby. It, 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 it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality and, a, and an unfortunate flaw in the work for hire company business that mm -hmm. the company that screwed you over makes you not want to work in certain ways for them but working in certain ways for them is to the benefit of the work you're doing. 
but you don't want to do it because the company screwed you over. So it becomes this, <laughs> it becomes this vicious circle uh, that, that, that is very, very hard to, to reconcile when you've been there and back several times like Jack had. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I approach my work with Marvel, and I don't even get any work from DC anymore, but I approach my work from Marvel with such a jaded, cautious eye over the last 20 years you know that that when i do it when i say yes to something if they ask me to do something when i say yes um it, it, it's always with like like a mouse that knows the trap is there you know yeah, that cheese <laughs> the cheese is yeah i see the cheese thank you i see it but i also know that it's a trap and and huh. and, and i think that's how kirby approached the time his time at marvel i really do it didn't diminish his creative energy but i think that there was a wariness and an exhaustion to yeah. his situation at that time which was unfortunate because in, in 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 some ways it reflected on the body of work you know maybe not so much on an on a issue by issue certainly not on a page by page basis but uh -huh. i think if you look at the overall body of work the whole, the whole run of of Black Panther, the whole run of Cap, the whole run of Devil Dinosaur, the whole run of Eternals. There, there's a there's a sense of like isolation that to the yes. work that kind of pigeonholes it in a in a corner of unimportance, which <laughs> it, which is not a place Jack Kirby should ever be. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but he went to that corner himself, and, mm -hmm. and and I don't think it was to the to the you know to the betterment of the of material. It's like, oh, for sure. You know, I spent four years writing Cable and Deadpool in a corner, and I was thrilled because I, I didn't want to be anywhere but that corner. You know, the right. book was always going to sell what the book sold. I just accepted that, and I got to write what I wanted, and, and it was it was actually tremendous fun. You know, so there's different situations, different circumstances where, yeah. where, where being being in the corner, and the company not knowing they're publishing the book is actually a good thing. You know, right, um, right. But, but I don't I don't think in this case it was. I, I think how much stronger the work would have been if it if it had flowed in and out of continuity. You know, yeah, absolutely. In and out of the Marvel universe. I only read Black, his Black Panther run for the first time. I don't know, three or four years ago. I've always been very hesitant to pick it up, and even when it came out in the beginning, I felt like fifty-five year old white Jewish man may not be the best choice to be the voice of a, a black character at this time. Yeah, especially following what Don McGregor did with Billy Graham. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a bit of a jarring change because I was reading Black Panther by McGregor at the time and I also read Kirby's Black Panther. And, and, yeah. and I, I, I got all the Black Panther issues when they originally came out and I, I don't think I liked any of them, but I got them all, you know? Um, they get better about and, halfway through, but that, those first bunch of issues, Black Panther is like completely optional to the storyline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, he is. You're absolutely right. And and it's it was just such a jarring SF departure, which yeah. quite frankly is odd because if anything, in many ways, Don's black panther was more of a jarring departure <laughs> from oh, that what it from what it from what it had been i mean sure. if anything kirby really went back to the way he introduced the character back in the ff way way back when you know yeah um, that's true and, and that's more of what kirby saw as the black panther than, than what don did then don I, I sincerely i sincerely doubt he saw looked at what came in jungle action anyway oh yeah no no i don't think he did i'm yeah. sure he did 
you know, but it was just interesting because they were two diametrically opposed approaches, the same character. And what, what I'm curious about is the irony that both approaches are technically correct <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, for sure. from, a, from a dna standpoint kirby's approach is correct he should know he created the dna you yeah, know right but, but from from what a character needed and the kinds of stories that character needed and that the company needed and that the industry needed mcgregor was correct you know i find that interesting you know the the thing about kirby when you think about it, adam we talk about the the treasury coming out in right. june I think issue 200 came out in June or July of that year too. Right. And he also had a cap annual that came out that year too. Uh-huh. Plus the regular cap monthly book, plus the other books he was doing. Oh <laughs> yeah. Think, I don't think 2001 came out in 76. I'd have to go look that up again. Can you imagine if the tabloid, if the treasury edition of 2001 came out of the same, same year as the treasury edition of cap? Hard to imagine, um, but and also he's virtually the only person who did more than one original treasury edition. You know, almost nobody else. You, like there were a couple of Marvel, Superman, Spider-Man crossovers by different teams. By different teams. Yeah. Uh, Ger- Gerber did the original Defenders um, yeah. story in the Howard the Duck special. Right. So you know, they, I don't they think really... I don't, can't think of that many other people who did original. Yeah, I mean, uh, the DC ones... There weren't there was that quite... many original Treasury editions. Though. No, there weren't. There were, Marvel did very did a lot fewer than DC, I think. But um, Oh, really? Marvel, I thought it was Marvel the other way around. More. Well... I thought Marvel did more original ones than DC did. But I, I could be wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't following all the DC ones. I got a bunch of them. I wasn't either. I I've done a little research on them recently, but there were, there were definitely some things... And by the way, I have to mention this because it's so hilarious, but DC did a Bicentennial Treasury Edition 2 that called Superman Salutes the Bicentennial. I guess it was, you know, a collector's item classic kind of thing or yeah. whatever. All uh, Collectors, I can't remember the name of the, they had a weird um, name for their things. But somebody pointed this out to me the other day and I had to look. Superman's on the cover holding, you know, like an American sort of shield thing. And then inside there's a couple of pages where he introduces my good friend Tomahawk. And then there's the rest of the book is all Tomahawk reprints, which is mind boggling. So there's no, (laughs) there's like no Superman in it. That seems, um, that seems like a bit of a cheat. Ill-advised you might say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Absolutely. DC doing ill-advised things to Crazy. their fan base was kind of like you know business operation yeah. mode back then, you know. I, um, I guess so. They did. No, no. I was just going to say that. That. Yeah. They. I. I think that. I just always thought Marvel had more original tower, more original Treasury editions. So I. I could very well be. I got a bunch in the basement. I can't think of any that from dc that were original other than the crossovers um there was a superman and wonder woman there was a superman and shazam superman, hulk or, there was batman hulk there right. was two superman spider-mans yeah there was a superman wonder woman one right but and there all were two... of those are are kind of like all of those are like kind of crossovers i guess or yeah i, I guess superman wonder woman is just a, a a big team up yeah um, there was two oz books and the first one's officially a DC Marvel crossover. But oh, was by, it? Yeah, but it's by Marvel talent. 
Wait. Yeah, I didn't get the Oz one. I, I was, no, I was too cool them. for school. I was a, I was, I was 15 or so back then. That's, that's too. I'm too cool to be getting an Oz Treasury edition. Right. <laughs> I, I still don't know why they did it, even. Anyway, I was hoping we could talk a little about, like, just flip through a little bit because, man, sure. When you go through the Barry Windsor Smith section, which is the first 11 pages or so, I think it's 11, the last page of that Windsor of the Barry Smith inked section ends with Captain America leaving Mr. Buddha and basically saying, yeah, you, you know, screw you, buddy. I'm, you know, leaving. And uh-huh. he, he's kind of determined not to be part of this little experiment that Mr. Buddha is planning. And the last panel is Mr. Buddha having, you know, all these word balloon, thought balloons about like, he doesn't know about the psychic talisman I planted upon <laughs> him and all this stuff. And then you turn the page and it's a double page spread that is just so stunning where Cap's in this corridor and there's like a big mural on the wall of Civil War soldiers fighting like in a photo negative. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. It's, a, it's an amazing double page spread. Really is. And, and it's also like abrupt, not abrupt, but you know, it's jarring in a way because the inking changes too. I think this is maybe Dan Adkins. It just looks completely, you know, different in tone. Yeah, it does look like a totally different tone. And, you know, I, I it didn't bother me. I don't remember the inking changes bothering me when I was younger because I knew the different people had inked it. And I thought that well, was I'm not saying cool. it bothered me. I'm just saying you it's know? like it is just a sharp change in definition in a way. Yeah, the, but you know what? I think that there's more a pattern of consistency between the other inkers over Kirby's work throughout the rest of the, the story than, oh, definitely. Than, than what Barry Smith did, you know? I would love to have seen someone like Klaus Janssen ink, ink a chapter or something like that. You know, like in 1976, Klaus Janssen would have been super cool inking a chapter of this. It would have been and, amazing. I always wanted yeah, to see more like that. And there were very few instances of regular day-to-day line, you know, Marvel inkers. Like there's a couple of Devil Dinosaur covers, I think, inked by like Steve Lee Aloha or people like that. And, you know, they've got or burned in a couple of things and they've mm-hmm. got, a little bit of a different quality to, you know, the usual Mike Royer inking. And I love Mike Royer. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. You want to see a little more breath sometimes. Yeah. And, and Royer was, was, I thought a really good and often underrated inker on Kirby. But I think that as you get older, the mentality is it, it was, it's almost too slavish to the pencils. And it's because you're you want to see a variety. You want to see out of curiosity something different. You want right. to see someone else on Kirby as much out of curiosity to see how it would look, uh, because you've seen so many Kirby pages. You've seen so many Senate inked Kirby pages. You've seen so many uh-huh. Royer inked Kirby pages that that it's to your eye, it's something you're used to already. Even if it's a really good page or a really good panel, you're still yeah. used to it. It doesn't sure. register the same way that Barry Smith's page because they're so different, you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I would have loved to see Klaus, Bob McLeod at the time, you know, would have been really interesting. There's a lot of people. Yeah, and you know, but going back to that double spread you were just talking about with the, oh, war, yeah, yeah. the war scene, that what I found also super fascinating is that the very next panel, because it's a double page top spread, but there's four panels running along the bottom of the double right. page spread. The next panel is like the ghosted image of one of those soldiers on the mural. Yeah. And it's actually a hologram. 
that yeah. that he's basically like almost like a hologram mural it is yes that, that cap is walking by or through and again it's that kind of a little touch that that i don't know most artists would have thought of you know like uh-huh. to to to, Cur- to kirby it's completely natural in 1976 to be thinking of a holographic museum mural you know what i mean yeah, <laughs> like, it, it, right it's amazing there were, there, were, there were no holograms in 1976 <laughs> you know? oh my god he's just drawing it as a casual little foreground aside you know yeah so do, are you familiar with the fire sign theater I've heard of it. I'm not, I'm not placing it in context. Well, they were a comedy group and they did full record albums of stories, like long stories. Okay. And they did an album in 1971. I think this is the right one. Yeah. It's called, I think we're all bozos on this bus. And it's sort of similar structurally to this story in that oh. it involves a guy who is trying to figure out what he's going to do with his day and he sees sort of an advertisement a holograph advertisement for the future fair a bus just sort of comes by and picks him up and he goes to this future fair and sees all sorts of tableaus of american history and he messes with them and you know unlike captain america he's there to sort of show the world that you know there's there's something wrong in the american dream and because it's sort of one of the main characters that he encounters is like a Richard Nixon stand in, you know, mm-hmm. anyway. So it actually, to me is similar to this. And not only that, but it's clearly from my defenders podcast, I can tell you clearly an influence on the defenders where they have the bozos of few, you know, 75, yeah. 76. Yeah. I, I loved that stuff when I was in college in particular, they did four or five really great albums and, you know, a bunch of others that were pretty good. <laughs> so, uh, what are what are the odds then that Kirby heard the album at some point? And... I don't know. Maybe one of his kids played it. You know, I don't. I don't think it's yeah. super likely to tell you the truth. But he was in California, and that's where they were popular. I'm always surprised after the fact when I when I when someone shows me the correlation between some pop, you know, something that happened in pop culture and how it influenced a comic book creator to tell a story in a comic. Yeah. Because in 30 years, I've never really written that way. And I don't think ever. Um, and yet you can really see that often. Like I never would have known about the, the bozos and defenders being something that could be shown to be drawn from, from the album. You know what I mean? And we all know Claremont's ticks that, that you know, oh, yeah. what Whatever, whatever multi-part story of X-Men was coming out was just, just find out what movie came out six months earlier, um, and 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 they're prevalent, they're prevalent everywhere though. And, That's and true. I'm like, I, I always thought a lot of Claremont stuff came from Robert Heinlein novels. Tom. It probably did, and I never read more than one or two Robert Heinlein movie novels when I was back in college. You know, so you, that's the thing. I I'm not, I, I'm not versed enough. Right. In, yeah. Yeah in that kind of a depth, a deep dive into, into so many things that these other writers and artists sure. might be into, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I've spent most of, most of my life just reading like historical nonfiction ah, and, wow. and, uh, and watching me too much television. So, yeah, so yeah. you know, 
and I could never really find a way to adapt that Law and Order script into a into an issue of X Men. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I was looking at the wrong sources. I could have found so many easier ways to cheat. <laughs> so, um, after Cap leaves the building, finally he gets in a taxi, and he's looking at his hand. This is the second time somebody stuck something in Cap's hand, and it's had an effect on his life. By the way. The first oh thing. really? What happened? What happened before that? Is oh, that way back, way back in Tales of Suspense, Nick Fury puts a badge in his hand that says you've got Shield priority clearance or whatever, and so you know he becomes sort of an unofficial agent of Shield. For oh, him. okay. This was this, a this was kooky because I just found I was wondering how long it was going to take him to look at his palm and see yeah, that right. he had so, a mystic talisman now on his palm. Yes, it's like it, Spider-Man's a lot smoother with his spider tracers than Mr. <laughs> Buddha was with his mystic talisman. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great graphic that Kirby comes back to over and over in this with Cap seeing that glowing thing in his palm. And it's, you know, it, it looks amazing. Yeah, so, it's great because it serves as a really smooth transition between time jaunts you know like yeah. like every time you look at the you look at the hand of the palm you know that the time joint jaunt is coming you know right and um suddenly he's in you know colonial times and he meets ben franklin and all this stuff and i have to say for all the criticism that people have laid on jack kirby as a writer i think there's a lot of great writing in these pages and in all the different eras he does a good job of capturing the tone that people spoke with in the, in those times. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought that it, in, in this particular case, my issues with, with any of Jack's dialoguing is far less with the ancillary characters uh. that appear throughout the time joints than they are as usual with Cap. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I could see that. I just, yeah. I just don't know that Jack ever really understood Cap is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, how could he possibly? <laughs> I just, I don't want to hear Cap say good gravy after I just read, you know, three years of, of Englehart having to, having to deal with the secret empire and, and, and Richard Nixon being in, in charge of the evil organization. I don't yeah, need right. to hear him say good gravy. It just doesn't work for me. <laughs> no, that, you know? that's, that's a really good point. And it is true that I think Kirby ha may have had a hard time finding the tone for a character he's known so long and who he has such specific aspirations for, but who's, you know, just been, you know, dragged through the mud um, in his previous several years worth of storytelling. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and the other thing is that the Jack's cap always seemed to go from zero to 60, like uh, at the drop of a dime, like, <laughs> yes. he would get, he'd get angry real fast. And, Right. I, I don't know. It just it always struck me as kind of odd when I was reading it. And then when I reread this, it happens several times in this book. Like yeah. even in this scene with with Ben Franklin and it's like he's he's this close to kicking the crap out of Betsy Ross. I don't get it. You know? <laughs> I know. I don't understand the rationale for why he's getting so mad so quickly. I don't understand that either because and he literally says here, I've been ripped off by Benjamin Franklin. It's like, yeah, dude, yours, your whole costume was inspired by the American flag. Why should it surprise you that if you're in colonial times, someone's going to look at your costume and think, oh, that's kind of an inspiration for a flag. Yeah, like, it seems incredibly selfish of Cap's part, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a little odd. <laughs> the living symbol of all that is good and true about the possibility of America is, is angry that... 
his costume might be the template for the American flag. Yeah, it's, it's so strange. It's like, I, I get it, he's stressed, it's been a difficult day, but just, just relax for a minute. You were just sitting down having tea with Ben Franklin a second ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, this, that, that, that one chapter, I thought, in my rereading of it, I'm sure when I was 15 or 14, I just rolled my eyes and said, "You got to be effing kidding me." But <laughs> when I when I reread it, it felt really unnecessary in comparison to how the other chapters flowed, how the other time joints flowed, and yeah. many of them flowed much more smoothly than that yeah, one did. That's true, and yeah. and that's why I say like I, I think I think Jack was his own worst editor. You know, I, yeah. I, I think I think. He's such an idea machine, and he's such a concept oh, guy. Yeah. And he thinks, he really thinks, in in like high visionary terms. I think that an, a good editor would be able to help him sculpt that in a tighter fashion. You know what it's I mean? So, yeah, it's so interesting because like he never really had that editor. I think because Stan, even though he was an editor, he was very involved in the writing of the stories. Let's just put it like that. You know, he was obviously scripting them and co-plotting a lot of the stories or plotting them himself or telling, you know, give, they would share, you know, he'd share an idea and say, go run with it, Jack. And, you know, yeah. Even in the stories that Stan just, just Stan just said, whatever you want to do for the next 20 pages of fine with me, Jack. And even (laughs) in those stories, Stan was editing through dialogue, right? right? He got to hone that story in a tighter fashion through dialogue. Yeah, and 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 Kirby in the in the issues Kirby was writing himself, he didn't have he didn't have that. Someone else wasn't doing that for right. or with yeah. him. Yeah, and there was no opportunity because Kirby didn't do a plot. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't do like a script. It was just like he started drawing on page one, and he was off to the races. Yeah, he it was, was never- done with it. And he was done with page 20 by the end of the day. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was no time, literally. Can you imagine being Jack Senator? I'm going to get your notes on this tomorrow. Tomorrow the whole issue is done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mark Evanier has said that, written that a bunch of times that, you know, he would, you know, as his Jack's, one of Jack's assistants, they because I just read that Jack Kirby Collector 80, what was it called? It was, um, oh, Old Gods and New. And okay. um, he ta- Evanier talks in there about They'd go out to lunch, and Jack would talk about a story, and Steve Sherman and Mark Evanier would throw in a couple of suggestions, and Jack would say, that's great. And then two days later, they'd go back to his house, and he'd be done with the story. And not only was their suggestions not there, but neither was the story he talked about at the lunch. He outlined a whole whole plot. Mm Mm-hmm. It would just be something completely other because he would just – And when you think about it, he's doing – if he's penciling four books a month, you know – yeah. It's gonna only take him a couple days to pencil out an entire book. It's oh crazy. my god, it's crazy, no. it's it's crazy so when you think about it. With what yeah. we know of the industry and how it works, it's nuts to think how 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 this guy produced work. Yeah. And, and now I'm looking at the gangster scene with the kid wanting his nickel for his newspaper. <laughs> and I can't I can't never look at this scene again without thinking how much better it would have been if it was Ben Grimm. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It is funny though. I mean, it's a nickel, and these guys are opening fire on the kid. <laughs> Like, just give yeah, him the freaking nickel. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, they were lean times, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it was the depression, and you know, they they didn't want you know the bullets they spent alone cost a lot more than a nickel. <laughs> no, I don't. That's well, the irony. And, and to <laughs> be fair, the the gunfire doesn't really start till you know Cap 
rips the door off the car. <laughs> yeah, he Cap was a bit of the aggressor there for for the nickel. Although the kid did get his face pushed back by the mobster. I, I yeah, just, yeah. I, I I don't side with the mobsters on this one, Adam. I think they should have no, just paid no. the nickel. I think I, that yeah, they got what was coming to them. Right. <laughs> the cop starts firing back too, which is a great in this fantastic Kirby stretch pose. Oh. Like the, the cop, the cop is running I, like no no cop has ever run before. <laughs> his legs, it's his legs are splayed like you wouldn't yeah. believe. <laughs> right. Plus, he seems to be in a dress uniform. He's got the the buttons all down the front. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, I think that's the '30s look, wasn't it? That's, oh, of that's course. You automatically yeah, yeah, know right. it was the '30s. It, it, go. They got those long tunics. Yeah. And then Cap disappears again, and he vanishes, and all of a sudden ends now, up in Old West. That's yes. another thing I want to bring up. I, I didn't think of it in my original reading, but I, I or the other times I, I've read this several times over the years. But sure. When I reread it today, I, I thought to myself, would it have worked better if it was done in linear fashion chronologically? If he uh, I went, was thinking that too. If he went back to 1775 or whatever and then moved forward so that his trip would have mirrored the progression of the country. It's and, a really interesting question. did he not do that just because he felt like drawing things he felt like drawing? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. It really is. And would it have been stronger? I don't know. Because the jumps from one section to the other don't really, like it's not, this is going to sound horrible, but it's not like, you suddenly go from the kid yelling about his nickel to the buffalo and some connection to buffalo nickels or something that would make it like a transition. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, no. There's no. It's nothing as complicated. It's nothing as Christopher Nolan as that. <laughs> it, it is. It isn't. It is really randomly flowing. And, yes. And and I think that hurts the story in many ways because you could have built a stronger thematic undercurrent if Cap saw the progression of the country for its good and ill in the same kind of chronological order that the progression of the country for good or ill actually happened. Would, right. would, it, would it not have been stronger to have the escaped slave, or not the escaped, the escaped, the free man who was trying to be captured by 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 slave yeah. runners uh, later that happens later in the book come before the Geronimo section. You know what I mean? Like because uh -huh. that's when that's the things that led up to the Civil War and and I don't know. I just it, it makes me think as an editor and as a writer as much as a as a reader. How would I think about making this a stronger story that more fully takes advantage of Kirby's strengths? You know. Uh huh. Five, I would love, would love to write a book for Curry. I would love to write a comic with Jack Drew. Oh my God! Yeah, did you ever meet him? Uh, no, I was three feet away from him at San Diego Comic Con in like '87, wow. and I was too terrified to introduce myself to him I because that way. was like the height of the Marvel art return problems. And, yeah. and afterwards, everyone said he would he would have been polite and said hi to you, and and I knew that. Of course, I knew that inherently, but I was just too scared. And sure. I had the opportunity because I was I was by myself having left the bar and he was standing by himself and just just a few feet away from me. And then I lost it because like three, four people came up and started talking to him. And I just sort of like oh, slipped yeah. away. Yeah. And no. that was my only chance. And I really regret it because I've, I've met and or worked with almost all of the, the greats from the Silver Age of Marvel. Wow. Um, and he's the one I didn't I didn't get to.
I met yeah. a lot of those guys too. Yeah, I hear you. But I, I think I would have had a very similar feeling if I was working for Marvel at the time. Particularly, yeah, I, I totally chickened out. I, I yeah. totally chickened out. It just was so ugly. It, it, I felt such yeah. an undercurrent of disdain for the company. And I felt it's so odd because it didn't feel right to me because it, it didn't match the people that I worked with. You know, <laughs> the people right. that I worked with, did, I didn't feel were worthy of that kind of disdain and yet i understood it because the company was involved in what the company was doing you know yeah. so it was an awkward it was an awkward san diego comic-con i remember that for sure. uh, yeah and i wasn't much of a writer back then i wasn't so i was really there as advertising manager in my promotions job you yeah. know yeah. so i'm really a company shill so guess what I, you know i'm i am the i am the target for those arrows i should be you know what i mean um, yeah that makes sense. What do you think about this section with the Native Americans? <laughs> I, I kind of liked it to tell you the truth, but I, yeah. I, like, I like anything with Native Americans where, where like, you know, the, the white guy gets gets to buy a clue. Uh -huh. I, I, yeah. I, I really felt that that the cap cap came in positive in this one. He didn't he didn't come in angry. You know what I yeah. mean? He didn't come yeah. in righteous. He came in yeah. positive and they reacted to that in a good way. I like the right. cap tried to stop the sold the the U, the US army soldiers from continuing their pursuit of Geronimo. Right. I, I thought that um I thought this was the chapter almost where it seemed like the themes Jack wanted to play with clicked in. You yeah. know? It, 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 they weren't there as much with Mr. Buddha, they weren't there as much with with uh, the the nickel kid. But, right. but here is where they really started to take root. They weren't there as much with Ben Franklin either, because that yeah. that could have been a much more interesting chapter if it had been more about ideals and and, and ideas uh -huh. than it was about uh, the flag or the costume, you know? Right. And in this chapter, they really kind of start to, to they really start to hit the nail on the themes of the book. Yeah, and this has really a couple of unbelievable, spectacular pieces of art you know the two-page spread of the Ugh. cavalry coming to attack and cap is sort of like the horses are jumping around him and over him and things yeah. and he's vaguely trying to you know yell and stop them and then the final the following page is unbelievable which is just a close-up of cap yelling with his hand outstretched and that talisman on the palm and he's just saying there's another way another way we're all americans yeah, yeah and, it's uh, a it's it, when you think about it, I don't know that there was any other artist back then who would have, who was even doing many double page spreads, okay. um, m much less following that up with a full page splash of a face. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's absolutely amazing. It, it, it's pretty dynamic, and it's and it's as it, it's as powerfully successful in on this in this issue uh, as it is like when Brian Hitch and, and and Mark Millard did it in Ultimates with, you know, the Captain America telling off the French or whatever it was, a, a full page yeah, yeah. splash of a face, you know? Right. I respect it, the living daylights out of it because it's something I would never have the balls to do, you know? Yeah. I, right. I, I, as a writer, I've never thought of following up a double page spread with a full page shot of a face, you know? It just, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's beyond my ability to think that I can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirby Kirby probably called it Tuesday, you know? For sure. And it's like even having the guts to to 
conceive of that page, but then when you draw it, it's like the fingers are blocking most of his face. You can see one yeah, yeah. eye. It's yeah, it's really not so much a, a, a full page splash of a face. It's actually a full page splash That's of right. a hand. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> with 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 lines on the fingers that, by the way, no glove has ever made in the history of oh, ever. Oh no, <laughs> it makes no sense at all. I love that Jack didn't give a flying crap. The folds of the folds of cloth on the gloves. Yeah, yeah, I know it is astounding. And then you know it's interesting also. Like again, that book I just read, "The Old Gods and New." There's a whole bunch of artwork from the mid '70s by Kirby, and they're private pieces that he drew to frame and put up in his house. I mean, I don't think he drew it for that purpose, but you know, he decided to frame them, and they're like visions of God that mm -hmm. go back to almost like a 1930s illustrative style they're really different from this huh. so it's worth checking out for that I, yeah anytime i see the stuff he did that i used to get the kirby collector books the big, uh -huh. the, big the big tabloid size books i used to get them for a while and i um I, I think i gave most of them over to my brother but but i might have a couple still yeah, I, yeah. I used to love it because i loved seeing his pencil art at that size oh you yeah. know Absolutely. Um, it, it was really really cool to see yeah so then we jump ahead into this mining disaster story, which I'm not entirely sure when this is supposed to be taking place. It's clearly early 20th century sometime, but it's a little vague. Yeah, and again, that that's it's a frustrating thing for me as a reader because the 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 point is being made about the it's really a subtle point about about the circumstances and conditions that the American workers had to work under. You know, right. To, that, that is the underlying make, point to make the capitalists their money. And, and and it's not it's not strongly it's not presented strongly enough to make no, it I agree. Work. You know, they yes, they are trapped. They are trapped by their conditions, you know. Yeah. But yeah. but the, those who are doing the trapping are not called out clearly or cleanly enough for right. the point to be strongly made. You know, yeah. If there had been like another page where they, you know, reach the surface and see the head of the mine mining company standing there and Cap mm -hmm. tells them all for something, you know, yep. that would have driven the point home. But it, they don't. Yep. It's just they get freed and then Cap's gone. <laughs> yeah. And it's good drama. You know, don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's good drama. It's good drawing, of course. You know, yes. Jack always did a great job drawing bedraggled people. Yeah, right. <laughs> he he drew he drew like wasted people really really well. Yeah, it's true. But the next the next chapter is one of my favorites too, just because I love uh I love the biplane stuff. That's great. Yeah, World War and One. I love that full page splash. Uh huh. Yeah, World War One. Suddenly Captain America is in a biplane and he's being pursued by I guess a German pilot. And I I, I love the 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 angle and the perspective he takes on that splash page. He's not giving you an establishing shot of a of cleanly understanding oh, yeah. the, where two planes are in relation to each other necessarily. He's giving you an emotional impact by by giving you a medium to to close up shot of Cap and his. You can't even see the totality of his own plane. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. But drawing that plane behind it gives you all it gives you all the spacing you need to know to understand the situation. You know? Yeah. It is pretty amazing. And then the the bullets are flying past him and everything. And he's just like, yikes, jumping fireballs. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, another one of those good gravies that I can't stand. Jumping fireballs. I know. It's like, what is that? And then, you know, it's only a brief section. It's only like three pages, really. That's one of the shortest little segments in this thing. Because then he reappears in Mr. Buddha's headquarters for a minute to say, I've had enough. Why are you doing this to me? Stop it. You know, it's really just an interlude. And then suddenly Cap is transported again to fighting John L. Sullivan. So I guess this is like 1890s. Yeah, yeah, it would be, it would be the late late 1800s. Yeah. Um, and there's very little point to that. That oh, chapter. It's just silly. I think he just wanted to draw that. In fact, I meant to ask you earlier. Have you seen the other version of the the cover? No. So there's another version of the cover that accidentally got printed on an Italian edition of Bicentennial Battles. Hmm. No, I never knew that. Yeah. In place of the group of colonial soldiers on the left was Cap fighting John O'Sullivan. So apparently Jack really had a fondness for this guy, I guess. And actually Marie Severn drew in those colonial soldiers. Oh. And then also the other difference was uh, in the upper right, that little moon vignette. Cap wasn't in that, and Ramita drew in Cap in that picture, which is oh, I gotta I check know. that out. I'm gonna look that up online afterwards. Yeah, if you look that. on comics.org and you find Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, they mentioned the other uh, version, and there's a link to it. So it's just a little different, but it's interesting that it exists. That's in, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I there, there's so many of those things that we didn't we didn't get enough of a chance to see. At the oh, time, yeah. you know, like all those inter the different covers and pieces of art and and piecemeal art that they put together, pastiche right. style for international editions and all this other stuff, you know. Yeah, and that's the other weird thing is that Marvel had a way of letting those early versions of covers slip through to the international publishers. Sometimes, like there's a late period Spider-Man cover. I think it's the Molten Man issue where Ditko drew Spider-Man like as a, a rear view straight on. So it was really his butt in your face. <laughs> and they redrew the figure. I think Ramita redrew it to be more of a side view. Uh, but the but the original version is out there because they let some foreign publisher, you know, use it. That's interesting. It's so it, weird. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I'm having spent the amount of time you've spent in an office and, 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 and I was there 10 years, right? You, you've been between DC and Marvel longer. It, right. it, the, there's so many things that happen almost on the side, like, oh, yeah, I got this or here, take this or what about right. this? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and, and it's stuff lying around or stuff that isn't 100% finished but could be usable, that kind of thing. And we, we both know that it's all done out of desperation to just keep the machine moving, you know? Yes. Um, it, it's never, rarely is it done out of maliciousness or rarely is it done out of uh, out of any kind of an agenda. It's often just done, yeah, I got something, try, yeah, try this, you know? The the artists have been paid for their work and, and the, the, you know, the queasy part is that sometimes, you know, the artist never intended it in their mind when they drew it for, for X purpose you end up using it for its purpose, you know? Right, right, um, absolutely. And I had that a lot, because I, I commissioned a lot of original stuff for promotion 
uh, stuff when I was the advertising manager that ended up getting reused in other ways. You know, I never felt that that was any different than, you know, you guys commissioning a cover and me using it for something else in promotion. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, it, it just, when you're in the company, when you're inside the offices, you're just, you're just trying to keep the damn beast fed. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta shovel the coal into that fire and you just <laughs> gotta keep it going and you just hope you're not burning someone when you do it. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So then we come to one of the most interesting segments of the book, I think. Yeah. And this is one where he actually does take a better advantage of the historical placement of the story because he's run into uh, what did you say? A freedman? Well, he's a free, he's a, he's a free black man. Free black um, man, who's, right. Who's trying to be taken back to a slave state by bounty hunters. Right. And Cap They're defends, saying he's a runaway slave, but I don't know that he is. He, the, sli- the man himself says that, that he's a free man. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that happens a lot that, you know, people oh, would yeah. just be captured and dragged back. Oh, yeah, um, 12 Years a Slave is based on a true story. Yeah. Exactly that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Before we go too deep, though, Adam, this actually, this scene transition is exactly what you talked about earlier, not having smoothly when you mentioned the nickel turning into a buffalo nickel idea. Oh. <laughs> this has this has a cop with a gun to Cap's head in one panel, and then when you pull back to the next page, we're in the past, and it's a bounty hunter who has a gun right. to Cap's head on the panel. Yeah. That's a that's an excellent transition. Right, that the, works, you know, really temporally well, yeah. and visually, and and I think that the whole story would have benefited more, more from that kind of thought, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and like I said, I think this is one of the best segments of the whole book. Yeah, you know, I agree. Cap defends I agree. the freedman, and then a kid on a farm sees what's happening and says, you know, I've got to help basically. And one well-placed shot, boy, that is a well-placed shot because this kid doesn't want to hurt anyone, but shoots the rifle itself. That shoots the rifle out of the bounty hunter's hands. It's like, that is bananas, but okay. You just don't realize that that kid's going to grow up to be kid cult outlaw. And just a (laughs) fantastic shot. Just a great shot. That kid is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's comics for you. And you get, you also get one of my favorites. Every every Kirby book has to have at least one fantastically solidly landing Kirby pun, punch. Oh yeah. And and That's... in this case, it's it's like the lower left panel of of that page, the floor panel shot. Yeah. The guy, the guy's face is just getting full on knuckle sandwiched. <laughs> it's true. He's and he's just like on the floor. You know, the next thing. You know, yeah, the next, next thing he's gonna know, he's he's gonna be in the hospital with his jaw wired. Yeah, so. and I don't know how good they were at wiring jaws back then. Maybe so. not. Yeah, it's just a, sorry, that guy's in it. for a world of hurt. Yeah, but it serves him right. Just gonna have to amputate that jaw. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he deserved it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I love the exchange between Cap and 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 the black man. I just think that um, I, I it's it's exactly what the tone of the book should have had more consistently. Yeah, which is which is about about hope and unity through the adversity that that you're going to face that that you know it's not it's not an illusion of the country being perfect it's the reality of the country needing to work to be better you yes. know yeah that sequence between them really 
really hands that down. And it, to me, then it gets marred now that I know more about history that, that Kid Colt Outlaw Supershot turns out to be the son of John Brown, who was who was an absolute maniac. <laughs> well, yeah, geez. And, but, but Kirby even kind of portrays him that way in that last panel, the coloring and the, the close-up of John Brown is like, this guy looks insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. Yes, it's a, again, it's that that great Kirby ability to draw, <laughs> draw, draw the the sunken depths of a human being yeah. in, in in a few quick quick lines. <laughs> and then we move on, and poor Cap, apparently he's going to ride a horse across the entire country, and then he's <laughs> going to get, and the horse is going to be a little pissed about this, and he's the horse is going to buck him. And yeah. I don't blame the horse necessarily because I'm assuming the shield weighs a little bit. <laughs> you know, you never get that impression, but I'm sure you're right. That's funny. <laughs> well, you know, do you want this guy on your back like for like, you know, hundreds of miles? I mean, oh, me it's a lizard. A lizard scurried in the path. Come on. Oh, okay. It was a lizard that scurried in his path. Yeah, that 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 would do it, right? <laughs> you know, the only thing that caption is missing is a little arrow coming off the caption like like yeah. dc used to do with the flash books pointing was, at the lizard i was gonna say you need like a carmine infantino hand yeah yeah pointing <laughs> at the lizard. it's a lizard <laughs> it's like a lizard right. flash, flash, flashback yeah a lizard I mean, is a little animal that lives in the desert <laughs> it's really silly that he gets bucked off that horse for that reason but at the same time it makes for a great transition i think another good transition yeah yeah because He's in yeah. the desert, and suddenly there's a jeep coming to pick him up <laughs> and get this guy out of here because you know it's a nuclear testing ground in Alamogordo. But it takes it a couple days to get if, there. If it was a gamma radiation. I was just thinking the same thing. The Hulk. Yes. Rick Jones is out there, and he's got to save Rick Jones. Oh my God! That I, I didn't quite insane. get the point of this chapter of that segment. No, it doesn't I, make a lot of sense. I mean, it I doesn't didn't understand much. why. I, I, I'm, and it made me start to think: Is Kirby? Did, did I mean? Did he have a, an underlying story theme that he wanted to get across, or was it really just kind of a slipshod path skipping along the variety of things that have happened in to make this country? You know. Like yeah. the atom bomb is a big thing that happens, certainly to someone of Kirby's generation, to make this country what it is, uh, or by 1976 standards, what it was, you know? But it doesn't link itself to what just came before, or what came before that, or what came before that, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's That's... no real lesson here or anything. It's just like, look, power, and then he's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 the transition to the Chicago Fire is good, yeah. But again, there's no there's no thematic transition between no. scenes. There's just a solid visual transition between them. Right, and like you were saying, they're, they're, you you wouldn't really want it to be the Gamma Bomb because then it would just be fictional. But yeah, yeah. If Robert Oppenheimer or somebody were in this scene saying, "What have we, you know, what have we wrought yep. here?" Yeah, maybe that would have had a little more depth, but it doesn't at all. Yeah. It's just like. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great idea. That that that's a that's kind of a great touch. Like, <laughs> he he used he used bits of real history when when it suited his visual desire, but it, he didn't use the bits of history that could have helped you know the the story's needs. Right, and you know as a World War II vet, 
Kirby may not have really had much problem with hydrogen bombs or atom bombs or whatever. And I think this is a little early for the 1970s anti-nuke. Yeah, it is. But we we were we were still coming off Vietnam, and he he yeah. he was pro he was pro the need to fight in World War II because he was Certainly. very understanding of why Hitler needed to be stopped. I don't know that Jack Kirby would have was all that pro Vietnam War. You know what I mean? No. I didn't see that reflect itself necessarily in a lot of his work. No, um, but I, I was going to add also like actually that a lot of that movement in the 70s was about nuclear power plants not nuclear bombs mm -hmm. per se not bombs yeah. yeah yeah but anyway yeah really good transition in terms of you know the raging fire from the nuclear bomb seemingly to oh look it's the chicago fire of 1871 yeah there it is yeah and i love that panel with the brick wall crashing down on the shield oh I yeah just, before anyone else even bothered to try, Kirby was drawing the greatest debris before George Perez was <laughs> was was out of his diapers. Jack Kirby was drawing phenomenal debris and rubble. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is another pretty quick section, and it's really just about how even after adversity, the U.S. will rebuild. I don't think there's a lot to it. Yeah, and then I also wonder what happened to that poor guy that was drowning. Because Cap dives into the <laughs> Chicago River to save a guy that's drowning, and then, and then yep. that creates the transition to the next sequence. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that. Um, there, there He's was a, a goner, Adam. I, uh, Adam. Seemingly, listen, Cap can't save everyone. Okay. <laughs> I know it's sad. It's unfair to expect him to. Right. <laughs> and that now you can't tell me that the next sequence isn't just because he felt like drawing a shark. Oh, absolutely. Jaws was, you know, a phenomenon. Popular. Please, and there's no other reason than that. Unless yeah, you think much. someone told Jack, Jaws is popular right now. You should get a shark in there. Cap should fight a shark. That'd be fun. Yeah, he probably could. You know, it was in the air. It was in the zeitgeist, um, and <laughs> everyone was talking about sharks. I mean, it was huge. Yeah, so. it was, but it doesn't. Unfortunately. I guess maybe the, the 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 token nod to Jaws is is his way of giving a little tip of the cap to American pop culture as part of the fabric of American history and the American dream. See, I'm just totally bullshitting right now. I, you really of, are, and uh, really I appreciate spinning, the effort. I'm spinning plates, Adam. I'm spinning plates. <laughs> no, I know it doesn't make much sense, except that it does get him down to this undersea lab thing. Which also doesn't make much sense. Which doesn't make much sense, and he's only there for a page. And then he goes back to Mr. Buddha's HQ. I, uh, I, at this point, if I were Cap, I'd be asking him, can you please explain what some of these vignettes are supposed to represent? Because I'm very confused. <laughs> you're right. Also, I have an extra glove at home. I can just throw this one away and get the heck out of this. You know, it's like, yeah. dude, it's a glove. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and then, but, but, then we get the, the most exciting chapter of all, the face of the future. So he gets back to Mr. Buddha and Mr. Buddha, you know, he's saying like, I sure wish I knew what was going on here, what the point of all this is. And um, you've got nothing to teach me, you know, and Mr. Buddha says, how about the future? What, can't the future teach you something? You know, it's just an excuse I can't, to get I can't be, uh, It's really funny. I can't 
flip through these pages with you without thinking about what you said, like what if it had been someone like Doctor Strange or something like that, you know? Oh, and yeah. It, it, what if what if the storyline had a through, uh, like had a, the story had a through line that that these tri these travels and he needed to see something and put something together in order to solve a puzzle that was going to help. Well, that's a really good point in the present day. You know? That's a really good point because it's like Mr. Buddha wants to show him something about America that apparently Cap doesn't know yet or hasn't really fully realized, but there's no specific reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it does it doesn't really add up to like a a, a mystery being resolved or something. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the Stan versus Jack school of comic book uh, history. No, um, I am a fan of each of them made the other better, um, <laughs> and and I can only imagine like you know Stan in, in his prime in terms of scripting uh, mid mid to late sixties uh, how he could have found the way just through dialogue and script and possibly even a convenient rejiggering of the page orders. You know, yeah. Yeah. he could have he could have turn this into a tighter more cohesive story and again the, the strengths of each of them playing to be the the greater whole you know mm -hmm. it is true that being said though nobody but kirby could draw a splash like chapter five and, right. and not have it just totally totally make you go oh look at that yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah cap is on the moon and, and he's in a spacesuit unlike on the cover <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> so for some reason he's on the moon i don't know what he expects me to learn here except how to conserve my oxygen cap thinks <laughs> yeah you know i wrong. think i i did i do we do get it, though the great kirby kirby tech we got great kirby uh, uh little little hover scooter thing with the other astronauts on it yes um, and there's war on the moon like it was a 1950s comic or something where these guys are yeah shooting at their enemies from the craft it's amazing it's hard and to tell what's going on really it's too different it, what he didn't do is say it's it's us versus russia or it's us versus commies or it's us versus nazis he didn't yeah. he didn't necessarily do that what what he did say and he says it clearly is that we keep fighting we we we, we find a way to keep fighting even into the future, no matter where we are, we're fighting on the moon, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, you know, the message is, is damaged for me a little bit by the jumping jackrabbits um, <laughs> that he says in that one panel. And, and here there's a line that the latest efforts in space have been sponsored in the name of international cooperation. I can't understand how, well, there you go. You can't understand. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, Kirby doesn't want to really bother explaining it, so he just have Cap has Cap be confused. Yeah, so. yeah, but it, man, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and then he finds on the last page of the Moon segment, he finds this crashed vehicle, and he looks into it to see if there's any um, survivors in the crew. And he's looking into like a porthole window, and the interior. He says the interior is a jumbled mess of smashed circuits, and then suddenly. <laughs> He gets transported again, and that that portal window, you know, over the course of a whole page, yep, nine, nine panels, panel grid. 
nine pound grid, very unusual for Kirby, becomes the lens of a, a movie camera. And he's on the set of a, a movie, a Hollywood movie in probably like the 19, late 1930s, early 40s. Yeah. And, and uh, it's actually quite an extended segment when you think about it. It is. Um, and, and, and a lot of big panels. Yeah. Including a full page splash of Cap in part of a whole show. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually incredible the amount of work he was willing to put down on the page. Look at the amount of figures he drew. Right. Drew these it's pages. absolutely stunning. And yeah, he never skimps. And, you know, good thing Vince Galletta didn't ink this, um, or half those figures would have been gone. But like yeah. the page. <laughs> There's there's that page Galetta should have inked a chapter in this. <laughs> that would have been something. Cap and one other guy throughout the whole book. That would have been it. He just would have erased everybody but one other guy. Yeah, that's true. The, the escaped black man chapter would have there would have been no abolitionists. It would have been just the guy. Just right, right. the guy. <laughs> but but again, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for for not enough payoff though. You know. The, yeah, the, the movie the movie segment doesn't doesn't say anything about our fixation or fascination with with celebrity and yeah. and, and and it doesn't make a point. It, it it just it's just there to exist visually, but it doesn't necessarily make a point about right. us as a country or a people. You know? Yeah, it's true. And, and and the previous one though ultimately did the, even the future chapter on the moon had a caption of uh-huh. um, that really cool space wreck uh, of the of, right. the of the ship has a caption in it that it's talking about how man will keep fighting anywhere they'll keep fighting you know wh- yeah. wherever they go so so it's just it's just this curious interspersing it um, is weird and it is oddly paced because like cap there's that nine panel page we talked about with cap sort of appearing into the mm-hmm. uh, movie set. Then there's a page where he's on the set and everyone's going like, hey, who's that idiot? And, you know, get out of here or whatever. And he's walking around on the back lot. And then there's a whole page where ha- Cap runs into the head of the studio and his son-in-law, who's an underling, who's trying to be more important in the studio. And almost the whole page is those two guys arguing. Yeah. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, and what? we'll never we'll never hear from Melvin Gruber again. You know, yeah, like right? It, oh, for sure. And is that is that was that Jack having started to go through some of the the Hollywood BS that he went through with animation studios and stuff like that? I mean, wasn't uh, was he know. starting to do design work and development? No, work? I think this is a couple of years before that. It was a little was before like, that, right? Yeah, that was like 78, 79. This is just real cliche, you know, the head of the studio and, and his, like I said, son-in-law underling arguing about dumb stuff. You know, there have been movies and, and movies and cartoons and whatever that sort of touched on these subjects for years and lots since then, you know? Yeah. But I got to tell you, that splash page of Cap in the musical, I, I hear the music from the first movie playing in the background when I see it. It's fantastic. <laughs> and I got to say, so the full splash page in particular, where he's sort of in the middle of this Busby Berkeley-like you yep. know, dance number, and there's music playing, and it's really like a few, you know, 20 pages ago or whatever it was, where the cavalry was attacking the indians it was pure mm-hmm. chaos 
And now here, it's like Kirby pulled out the stops, drew, I don't know, three dozen or so female figures of these dancers around yep. Cap, and they are perfectly aligned and perfect, you know? Yeah. Like, how do you do that? My God. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, actually a very cleanly, symmetrically designed page. Yeah. That, that, that flows from background all the way to foreground and caps the caps the the middle ground caught between the movement because he's the only one on the page who's not moving you know yeah and, and but he's still the focus of your eye when you're looking at it oh god for yeah. the first time it, and it, it really is a superbly elegantly designed it really page. is i was going to say but he's out of his mind for having drawn it yeah right <laughs> um and this does kind of make a point subtly about the sort of shallowness of a Hollywood vision of what makes America great or whatever. Yes. A glamorization. It's yeah. the wrong, it's the wrong way of thinking about the American dream. You know, yeah, right. it, 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 it's a, it's a bad surface way and coming after multiple chapters where we saw the miners and the capitalism and the slave and the Indians and the kid and the nickel, all of that would have really worked smoothly leading into this and then leading into the atom bomb and then leading into the, the, the war on the moon that, that, you know, it honestly makes me want to go back and edit this and get the original pages <laughs> and, and, and place them into an order that might work stronger. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. And then we come to, the, come to the end of the segment where Cap has had enough and he just starts yelling, cut, cut. And, you know, calling out to Mr. Buddha, show yourself. It was, he says, it was you who spoke of America and the truth at the heart of it. The, that sentence. I've still got to see it, Buddha. He hasn't quite taken in the fact that it's all these things and none of them. And then there's a, a transitional page where he's sort of in the shadows and Buddha shows up and he says, now you're truly at the heart of the matter, sir. Your trip has helped you after all. It has made you think. Well, okay, there you go. And and he even says, there's nothing more American than a movie because he quite questions, like, what was the point of that? I don't, you know, I just, I'm getting I'm getting to the point right now, Adam, where I'm just a little bit pissed about Mr. Buddha thinking he's arrogant enough <laughs> to be telling us what's what, you know? I know, it's I, like, who is know, this guy? Did they, was this guy born and raised here? I don't know. He looks like a foreigner. <laughs> Looks like yeah. a foreigner to me, Adam. It looks like one of them. I don't know if he should be telling us. It's a really good point. About... <laughs> <laughs> this book, this book can get ugly real fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it hasn't been that many years since we had the you know racist, bigoted Captain America replacement. Yeah, I know. You're right. Or uh, Cap Hydra, right, or anything. Weird. Yeah, yeah. We've had lots of we've had some, we've had lots of you know, dark caps replacing yeah. real caps. Right, right. And yet every time it happens, the fans still get all up in arms. <laughs> they do. I know. I was saying to somebody recently, I think there's only two kinds of Captain America stories. One's where severely disappointed by the American dream and has to fight his way back to his ideals. And one's where he's like fighting the good fight in World War II. I, I yeah. cannot, that's kind of it as far as I can tell. I mean, somebody a lot smarter than me could say, no, no, you're forgetting all this. But Sure. So, and when Mark Grunewald tries to do six issues of Cap Wolf, everyone gets on his case. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so now we're coming down to the end of the story. 
And Mr. Buddha this time accompanies Cap on the trip to... And Cap is basically showing Mr. Buddha what's what. Yes. And Cap says, why, there's country music. And they walk up to... It's like a bucolic sort of mountain scene in the hills. And there's some older man playing a fiddle on the porch of his house. And, you know, they're just sort of arguing it out and trying to figure out where, what does it all mean? And Mr. Buddha keeps saying, you've seen it. You've already, you've got it already. You're there. And Cap's saying, no, what does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) Explain this to me like I'm an idiot, Mr. Buddha. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because then the next thing is they see, you know, they're transported into a city setting and Cap's looking in on some, I guess, high schooler who who's a, a young black man who's doing his homework and studying and trying to figuring it out because this is sort of the the moment of you know you can you can better yourself that's what america is all about you learn and, and pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you'll pardon the expression <laughs> yeah yeah basically then, that's it yeah it's the, it's the hard work and you will succeed theory. Yeah. it's a theory all right it's a theory <laughs> And then Buddha says, your trip's almost over. And he sort of disappears and backs away from the scene. And Cap's going, we're not, we're not there yet. What are you doing? And suddenly Cap is back in greenery and trees. And he hears the voices of children calling to him. It can't be. It's Captain America. And it's just a, a bunch of suburban kids. I think they're supposed to be suburban. Yeah, probably. Yeah, houses in the background. Yeah kind of coming up and asking him questions and saying, what are you doing here? And he's kind of, he kind of tells them that, you know, we can all be superheroes. You, you know, any one of you. Girls too? Says a girl. Like the only girl with a line in this whole book, by the way, except Betsy Ross. <laughs> no, they get they get a few more lines on the double page spread coming up. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's very... Yes, I believe women might have been slightly marginalized in this book. <laughs> yeah, 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 thank uh, by by not being in this book, <laughs> right? I mean, the only other women really are those dancers in the. You know, there's a few here and there, but they really have no nothing to add to the story, so so to speak. I want that shirt that kid is wearing in the top right panel. It's the one with, with that, Ben Grimm. No, no. Oh, the, the like, guy, the little dorky guy. The who face is that character. Yeah, who knows? But I mean, just that that kid with the blue hair, and he's got like yeah. a. a face on his shirt. I don't know what that's supposed to be, but I love it. That's. I'm glad that Coletta didn't ink that or else you'd never have seen that face. That's true. Anyway, so then the very end of the book is a two-page spread of Cap and all these kids just sort of saying, you know, what their hopes and dreams and aspirations are. Except for the one who's got a lollipop in his mouth. He can't talk. I do love the Kirby's view of 1975 suburban America looks uh-huh. like it came kind of out in 1927. Like, Oh yeah. In terms of the way the kids are dressed and yep. their hair, at least he has a bunch of diversity in there. Right. So, <laughs> that is impressive, but you're but absolutely even, right. All, all even the, the little are... kid on the right hand, the right hand side, his football helmet is like, is like a leatherneck helmet from 1922. Yes. Well, I was going to say almost all the boys are wearing caps like it's the 30 yeah. or something. But it's pretty it's, funny. It is funny, hey. and it's still still great. It's still a great double-page spread. <laughs> it is. So he's basically, 
I think when I come right when it comes right down to it, he's basically telling us that our country isn't perfect. It's <laughs> got plenty of things wrong with it. It's gone through plenty of adversity, but every generation has the chance to make it better. I think that's you're absolutely I'm, right. That's what I'm taking out of it. Yeah, I believe the children are the future. Yeah. It just to me it's like it, I'm sorry, but it just sounds like he's punting. Oh, for sure. He's just kicking the ball downfield and just saying you handle it. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna actually come out and say anything here because it's just too much work. <laughs> I just drew this giant ass thing in the middle of a hundred deadlines and it was a lot of work. <laughs> it is amazing. So, and I you know, someday I hope Mark Evanier will publish that full Jack Kirby biography he's been working on forever. And I would like to see who kept track of all those deadlines for him. Was it Roz? It must have been. It must have been Roz. It had to have been. I can't imagine until he had more assistance and stuff like that. I don't think he had assistance. No. He was juggling so many uh, deadlines and so many assignments. But I think the other thing you got to realize, though, if you're drawing an entire book in four days or three days, (laughs) Four days, let's say, and it was usually three. You know, yeah. the deadlines are not are I not the same. You know what I mean? Yeah, because they're true. not stretched out over an entire month and overlapping with other stuff. It's like a, the new book was ready to draw when the last book is finished, and you're doing you're doing a minimum of one a week, right? It's and plus covers. Yeah, right. 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 So it was just nonstop. I I love the, I'm not 100% sure he needed to worry as much about deadlines. You're probably Maybe right. when he was doing the Fourth World books, since he was editing them, yeah. and he had to coordinate his own drawing to the release schedule, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to having other people do it for him. Right. Right. But it's, it, it is incredible. I, now, after we're done with this, like in the next day or two, I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at the release dates for some other stuff. Uh, and, and I want to get an idea of how many pages he might have drawn for Marvel. I had an idea seconds. about doing something you know? like that. I had an idea of doing something like that, but I've never done it. You know, Tomorrow's has that Jack Kirby checklist. Yeah. And I wanted to suggest to them that they invert it and do another version where it's, you know, Jack Kirby Chronicles. And every month, what did he draw? What did he publish? It, it would be very interesting. To Yeah, it could be. Um, I mean, I know there are guys that have done that. I mean, there are guys that have done the hard work, you know. So I just, I just want to find their hard work online quickly <laughs> and easily. <laughs> right. And I got to be honest with you. Even back when I was fourteen, it was no different than how I felt just now earlier yeah. today when I flipped through this and read it again. The splash, mm-hmm. the the pinup pages at the back of the book are what made me the most interested in all of it. Because <laughs> yeah. I want to read. I want to read a book about each of the different versions of Cap that he drew in the pinup section. You know, three Colonial, three different ones: Colonial, Colonial Captain, Captain America, America yeah. Western Captain America, and Future Captain America. Right. Now, how much do you want to bet that he only drew those when someone at Marvel called him up and said, "Jack, you're three pages short." Could be. Yeah. Otherwise, he probably would just would have done he would have done story pages, right? Yeah. Probably because the story, you know, these sections are so uneven in how many pages they have. Yeah. You could easily have slotted in a couple more pages if you wanted to, to, you know, flesh out something. But here's the thing, too. 
take into account besides the three pinup pages, he also did original art for the inside back cover. Yep. The inside the front. front cover. Right. And the back cover. Yes. So that's three more additional pages of original art. The back cover where Cap is congratulating Uncle Sam. You're as young and, and fit as ever. And I, yeah. I bring this up really specifically because if you don't know this, apparently today, the day we're recording this, is Uncle Sam Day. Is it? Yeah. I, I just didn't know that. It. I never heard of Why it before. How come DC didn't do some sort of a special edition of all their Uncle Sam and Freedom Force comics? Oh, yeah. That would have been great. <laughs> I don't know. I don't that, would have, that would have sold. Oh, yeah. Not? <laughs> a lot. Dozens of copies. <laughs> Well, this has been a lot of fun. It has been. I and look, we. I don't want it to. I. I love looking at stuff fairly and critically. Like the. The, the for me, I, right. I, mean, I don't read as much modern stuff. I, I, and when I do, I read it in digital form, and it's usually in trade paperback form. So I'm not reading them on a monthly basis anymore, like I used to. Sure. Um, I love reading the masterworks editions and the old stuff because I, I love looking at it again with a, the context of a kid who originally read it and, and an adult who's been a professional for five years. Yeah. And I like combining those perspectives and you have to be honest and fair to the material. There's flaws in everything we do, you know? Yes. And that doesn't make it bad. It just means that there are flaws in it, you know? <laughs> and, and this book is a great example of Kirby at his best and at times at his worst, you know? Yeah. It, and and I find that fascinating. I find that more interesting to talk about than 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 a perfect issue or a perfect comic. You know. Sure. I mean, um, whatever that is. Whatever that is, exactly, because it's all subjective, obviously. Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We all have our we all have our ideas of what we thought was a perfect issue, right. and maybe it wasn't, but in our mind, that was a perfect issue. I, I never thought of the Treasury Edition as a perfect issue, but it right. never left my mind. It always stayed in my mind one way or the other since I was 14 years old, you know, mm -hmm. because because of the scope and scale of what it was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I really do find that conversation really entertaining, enjoyable for me to, to go through it and, and look at it plus and minus. And now I want to rewrite the whole damn thing with Dr. Strange <laughs> being the tour guide. Well, so here's the thing I was going to mention, by the way, and I hate to make us both feel old, but uh, five years from now is the sesquicentennial of the u.s is it really yeah i don't I'm, i don't want to be around for that well <laughs> i hope you will be but the way, the way that, well no i meant alive but not necessarily in this country <laughs> <laughs> yeah really the, the way this country's going i don't know if i want to be around for that i don't know if i can stand a year of the conflict that that's going to create <laughs> i i hear you anyway but i'm just saying there may be an opportunity for another pass at this kind of a story, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'm, I'll be the guy they turn to, I'm sure. I hope. <laughs> Baby, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun for me too, Adam. Thank Thanks, you very man. much I appreciate for having it. me on the, on the show. All right. Hey everybody, it's Adam here, and I wanted to break in for a minute with a correction because I realized like two minutes after we finished recording this episode that I used the wrong word. Five years from now, in the year 2026, will not be the sesquicentennial of the United States of America. It will be the semiquincentennial 
or they also call it the sestercentennial or quarter millennial, 250 years. Anyway, just thought I'd go ahead and make that correction right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.